sentire media. Hello everyone and welcome to A History of Italy. Episode 8. The Lombards get comfy and some laws. So, last time we left King Adilov and his wife, Queen Theodolinda, happily kinging and queening their way along. Indeed, the Lombards had extended their domain in the peninsula, and in the year 592 they even laid siege to the city of Rome herself. Now, at this point, the Byzantine forces were almost powerless to intervene and help the Pope by sending troops to defend the city. This was symbolically represented by the fact that the Via Flaminia, the road that connects Rome to Ravenna, was interrupted by this time. Therefore, the Pope decided it was time to take matters into his own hands. Now, the Pope in question was no throne-warming, place-holding Pope, not at all. Indeed, the Pope in question was Pope Gregory, who had been elected in 590 and went down in history as Gregory the Great. Now, quick digression here. I'm planning an episode on the Church and Popes when we finish with the Lombards, since the papacy will play such an influential role in Italian and European politics with the Franks and the Holy Roman Empire. I'm a little scared of doing the episode, I must say, considering how muddled I'm sure I'll get, but anyway, I'll try and go for it. In any case... Pope Gregory himself oversaw the defence of the city, but he knew they could not hold out against the forces of the Lombard king. So, when Agilulf closed in on the Eternal City, the Pope rode out to meet him and was able to negotiate his way out of the situation by paying a tribute. The solution may also be in part due to the fact that Agilulf held the Pope and the Catholic faith in high esteem. Indeed, his wife, Queen Theodolinda was a Catholic herself, and under her influence, the reign moved closer to the Catholic Church, whose organization was coming to the realization that they could no longer look east to Byzantium for help. Although the king himself was still an Arian Christian, he had his and Theodolinda's son, Adeloald, baptized as a Catholic. The Lombard nobles weren't thrilled, but for the moment, they stopped at grumbles. In the year 604, the little kiddie was raised to the throne along with his father at the tender age of two. The formula used was Gratia Dei Rex Totius Italia, by the grace of God, King of all Italy. The first time the name of God was used in the Lombard crowning ceremony. In this situation, the little prince was also promised to a Frankish princess, which also allowed Dad to seal an eternal peace with the Franks. Of course, by eternal, we meant not eternal at all. So, King Adilof was sorted. He was laughing, sitting pretty. Bob was most certainly his uncle. He was even able to hang around for another 12 years, and he died in the year 616, the very first Lombard king to die of natural causes. 
Despite the fact that Prince Adelwald was underage, the succession went pretty smoothly. This may also be due to the fact that the only real contender with blood ties was Queen Theodolinda's brother, Gundewald, Duke of Asti, in Piedmont. But he had very conveniently died not long before Agilulf, and it seems that the royal couple just may have had something to do with it. We must also add that the succession came about in a good moment for the Lombards. Indeed, the Franks had allowed them to pay off their tribute in one bulk sum, and further victory over the Byzantines had allowed them to impose their own tribute on the imperial exarchate. So, for a while, the young king, with his mother as regent, were able to govern with a certain tranquillity. However, the whole Catholic question was simmering in the depths. The Arian dukes had put up with having a Catholic queen because things were going well and the king himself, Agilulf, had been Arian. However, now we had a Catholic king and a Catholic regent and their policy was very pro-pope and this did not make the dukes happy at all. The situation came to a head when Adolald refused to take advantage of the weak Byzantine position and deal a fatal blow, perhaps even expelling them definitively from the peninsula. The discontent finally found a representative once again in the Duke of Turin, as Agilulf had been. But this time it was a man named Arioald, who was able to overthrow Adeloald in 626 and become king. The young king suffered a poison attempt, and here my sources differ. One source claimed that he survived the attempt and didn't die until two years later, while another claimed that he died that year. In any case, he didn't last long. In 628, his mother, Theodolinda, also died. The date of her death was still commemorated centuries after, and, as we mentioned, to this day, you can see her legacy in the cathedral in the city of Monza, where you can also admire the Lombard Iron Crown. So, here we are with a new king, Arioald. Now, we have mentioned before that blood ties were not essential to the Germanic tradition, but the Lombards were now getting used to the idea of no longer being a nomadic people and the idea of hereditary power was starting to sink in. So, for good measure, Ariorald married Gundeperga, the daughter of Theodolinda, and her first husband, Althari. Now, although the new king came to the throne as a reaction to the policies of Theodolinda and her son, he didn't really affect any great changes. Indeed, despite the fact that he was an Arian, he was not really interested in the whole religious issue and generally quite tolerant. What's more, his wife was a Catholic and once again we had an Aryan king and a Catholic queen. One other noteworthy fact was that he brought the capital of the Longbard kingdom back to Pavia after Agilulf had moved it to Milan. His relatively uneventful reign lasted for ten years. Upon his death, his successor was the Duke of Brescia, 
a man named Rothery. It seems that he may have been chosen by the widowed queen Gundeperga, just as her mother had done with Agilulf. In any case, they did get married. So, Rothery's reign started in the year 636. The reign of King Rothery was a biggie in the history of the Longbard Kingdom of Italy. So if you only remember one king from this episode, remember him. First of all, he expanded the confines of the kingdom, taking over all of Liguria in the northwest of the peninsula, with its capital, Genoa. Although the boundaries all over the peninsula in general remain quite fluid, moving back and forth between the two contenders. He obtained a great victory against the Byzantine exarch, Isaac the Arminian, at the Battle of Sculterna along the Panaro River in the northeast. In this battle, 8,000 imperial soldiers were killed, including the exarch himself. Just a reminder, the exarch was the name of the ruler of the Byzantine territories in Italy, now mainly focused around the city of Ravenna, with other bits and pieces around the peninsula becoming increasingly independent. Now, almost all of the north was under the king's control. Having said this, it is not for his military exploits that Rothery is remembered. Before we proceed, we must point out that the Lombards, like many other Germanic tribes, had no written laws and often no written history. Laws and rules were common knowledge and kept orally, being told from one generation to the next. After a few generations rubbing elbows with the Roman culture, whose legal language we still see today in courtroom dramas from L.A. Law to The Good Wife, King Rothery felt that it was time for the Lombards to also have a set of written laws. Therefore, on the 22nd of November of the year 643, After several years of work possibly carried out by a scholar called Ansoald, King Rothery issued his edict in 388 chapters. They were divided as follows. Obviously, you don't need to remember this, but just to give you an idea what sort of content there was. So from 1 to 14, they dealt with crimes against the kingdom. From 15 to 145, crimes versus people. 146 to 152, crimes versus things and property. From 153 to 226, family and succession law. From 227 to 252, property and trade law. Chapters 253 to 258 dealt with crimes against society and peaceful co-inhabitants. And finally, Chapters 359 to 388 dealt with minor crimes and procedural law. We can gain a lot of information from the edict. Indeed, it is an interesting snapshot of the reign in the mid-7th century. And we can also go further than what's actually written and reconstruct a pretty good image of certain aspects of society. So first of all, let's look at what we actually find written about the laws of the Lombards and secondly, make some deductions. The edict addressed, for example, the issue of duels to solve conflicts, but unfortunately it wasn't very successful in doing so. It was, however, more successful in dealing with blood feuds. We all know 
that these are ongoing oppositions between clans and families, in which an initial affront or act of violence or even killing is avenged by another similar act, opening up a never-ending spiral of action and counter-action, very often ending in multiple killings. The edict introduced the idea of a fine to be paid to the victim's family, varying in price according to the status of the victim. This was the concept of the Wiedergild. We even get a price list and discover, for example, that a slap, which cost six solidi or gold coins, was more expensive than a punch, which cost three gold coins. Quick digression again here. The term solidus was used in imperial times, and at the beginning of the reign of the Lombards, they used imperial coins, but later also started minting their own. I have found studies on the coinage, on the weights and the alloy of the coins, on circulation and where they were minted, but not much on value and its correspondence to today's value. So, if there are any coin experts out there who have an idea of the value of a Lombard solidus from the mid-7th century, please let me know. You will have my gratitude and my great admiration at knowing something like that. Anyway, moving on. Fingers also had different values. So, if someone cut off your index finger, they would have to pay you 16 solidi, while if it was your middle finger, only 5. So, it must not have been much of an insult back then to give someone the finger. Speaking of insults, those were also naughty under the edict. So, you were not to call a woman a striga, a witch, and you should not call a man an arga, which meant useless coward. So watch your tongue the next time you mingle with Lombards at a party. As we mentioned, besides these interesting little quirks, the edict also gives us a good understanding of the social situation. For example, we know that society was divided into three main groups. The Arimania, who were the free men who could fight in the army. The Aldi, who were also free but tied in some way to the Arimania. The lowest level was that of the servants. Now, the Italian sources indeed speak of the word servant rather than schiavo, which is slave. So, I'm not sure if they were perhaps servants or slaves that were not considered property but human beings. But in any case, they were quite low on the social ladder. And the two lower levels, the Aldi and the servants or slaves, saw a mix of Lombards and Italians, evidence of an initial mixing of the two populations by this time. To be an Arimania, you had to have a certain amount of land. And indeed, land was the main criterion for social distinction, although we do see a rise in the importance of the merchant class, a group to keep an eye on as the initial Middle Ages progress. Further indication of the growing importance of trade was that it was from this sector that taxes mostly came, rather than land ownership. The edict also shows us a change from the late Roman agricultural-based society to the Germanic animal breeding, herding and hunting that was more suitable to uncultivated lands. We can see the importance of this sector of the economy in the fact that you could get a whopping fine of 50 solidi for killing a 
magister porcarius, a pig keeper, the same as for a civil servant. Interesting satire that pig keepers have the same value as government officials. Now, let's get down to the most important stuff, drinking. When the Lombards first entered Italy, they were still drinking a sort of beer without hops. But the nobles soon turned to the local wine, and later the whole population, although the nobles tended to drink from the more voluminous horns and the population from terracotta mugs. The edict had a great impact and was used as a base for law by the Franks and then the German Holy Roman emperors in Italy until about the 12th century, when Roman law was rediscovered. Speaking of Romans, the Edict of Rothery didn't initially apply to the local Italians, creating a sort of double system that was similar to that under the Goths. But in time, as they were allowed into the army and into administrative roles, it was expanded to them as well. In general, the edict was a real example of the increase of regal power. Indeed, a king was laying down the law for all. This didn't please the members of the aristocracy, who in time were able to place members of their own traditionalist faction on the throne, but even they contributed to strengthening the position of the king. At this point, there was no going back. In the next episode, things I'm afraid I'm going to get a little bit confusing with the succession of kings after Rothery, but then they should get back on track after that for episode 10. So bear with me for episode 9. Until then, thank you as always very much for listening. If you want to make any comments, ask any questions, solve any philosophical doubts that you have, please write in via email hello at ahistoryofitaly.com at the same URL. You can find lots of nice stuff. You can click through to our Facebook page and like that. You can see some of our walk around mini docs on Italian cities on our YouTube channel and have a look at some maps, lists of rulers and the timeline. Once again, thank you very much for listening and until next time, arrivederci. Sentire Media Hey podcast producers and show hosts, do you want to join a podcast network that celebrates all things Italian? At Sentire Media, we understand the allure of Italy and its unique culture. Our devoted team of hosts and producers are all driven by their shared passion for Italy, and we work tirelessly to create the best lifestyle podcasts and content that will whisk you away to the very heart of Italy. 
With us, you can savor the mouth-watering flavors, get lost in the stories from the past, break down the cultural barriers, and truly immerse yourself in the vibrant traditions of this intoxicating country. If you have a great podcast idea or are already in production and would like to join Sentire Media, head over to sentiremedia.com, that's S-E-N-T-I-R-E media.com, and find out how to submit your show.